The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. So what will Netanyahu do? He will try to keep them as happy as possible without interfering too much with real policy. He has long held the view, which is perhaps with some truth to it, that in many respects he is prime minister because he's so clearly more experienced than anyone else in his cabinet, will be the one running the show. He'll be the de facto defense minister. He'll be the de facto foreign minister. Whether he has a foreign minister or not, you know, that could change over time. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, November 3rd, 2022. The Israeli election results are in, sort of. The early count looks very favorable for former Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu and the far-right coalition that he would bring to power. The results are not 100% clear yet, but they're clear enough that Natan Sachs, my Brookings colleague who heads the Center for Middle East Policy at the Foreign Policy Program at Brookings, joined me in the Jungle Studio before a live Twitter Spaces audience to talk it all through. How did Netanyahu win while getting no more votes than the other side? How did he impose a unity on his side, and how did the other side fail to do so in a fashion that facilitated this? Who is Itamar Ben-Gvir, and why is he the new power source in Israeli politics? And what can we say about the government that is going out, a government that ranged from the hard right to an Islamist party. It's the Lawfare Podcast, November 3rd, Israeli election results with Natan Sachs. All right. So, Natan, let us start with what actually happened yesterday and to what extent there is still doubt on the subject. How would you describe the results to the extent we can fully understand them of the election yesterday in Israel? And what percent doubt would you assign to whatever result that you're describing? Official results are not in, but we have the vast majority of the count. We can, with great deal of certainty, say that Netanyahu has won. We don't know if his coalition will be a stable 65 out of 120 or a less stable 62 out of 120, but he has won. And that means that this years-long political crisis in Israel is probably over for quite a while, and we're returning to something of a normal of Netanyahu in command, but nothing of a normal in terms of the coalition he's going to have. It's going to be a very different coalition than what we saw before. The, the big question now is whether the Meretz party, which is the far left Jewish party, gets in or not. 
Balad Party, which is the nationalist Palestinian one, will not get in. And overall, the remarkable result, which will sound familiar to Americans maybe, the pro-Netanyahu camp and the anti-Netanyahu camp got almost exactly the same number of votes. But the Netanyahu camp was united and coordinated, and the anti-Netanyahu camp was very much not so. And therefore, two parties of that camp will not pass the minimum threshold of 3.25%. And that side has lost. Netanyahu has won. There's a lot of material there, and I want to break it down a little bit. So first, you say um, that the two camps, broadly speaking, uh, got almost exactly the same number of votes, which also happened in four successive prior elections over the last two years. But these camps, as we understand them, we're used to thinking of kind of a left camp and a right camp is not actually describes the two camps here. So describe for us what characterizes broadly speaking, the two camps in Israeli politics, one of which seems to me easier to describe than the other? Yeah, that's a great question. So early in the state in Israel, before 1967, Israel had a right-left political axis that was somewhat similar to European axes in particular. The right was for smaller government, less state involvement in the economy, Um, the left was the reverse, and in the beginning, Israel's history was very much socialist one. After 67, takes a bit of time, but it becomes essentially a very different axis, and we're still living to a degree in that world, which is that right wing does not mean small government. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. It means hawkish on the Israeli-Arab conflict and especially the Israeli-Palestinian one. And left wing means more dovish of various kinds on that issue. So the Meretz party I mentioned before, which is a very small one as we see, is very much pro-two-state solution. It's very much pro-peace with the Palestinians. It's not the only one that's like that, but that, that would be sort of left wing, whereas right wing would be not giving up any of the land of Israel, not re- uh, returning anything and, and no, no concessions to the Palestinians. That's sort of the basic right and left in Israel as it has been for many, many years. It strongly correlates also with religiosity and with issues of religion and state. It also correlates with other social issues, although not as strongly as you might think. Uh, LGBTQ rights, it correlates, but it's not as simple as that. The Likud is, is more diverse than you might think. And there are the correlates as well. Religiosity is a good one. There's also, of course, a matter of background, ethnic background or different origins of Jewish populations, whether they're from Europe or from the Muslim world. In the last few years, we see something very different. People are still very much about this right and left, but they are also, and even more so, about one overriding topic, and that's Bibi, Benjamin Netanyahu. And Israel has become sort of a one-person political system, which to a degree is true in the United States as well. It's very unhealthy, of course, but it's very much the issue on which these two camps divide. When I said before the anti-Netanyahu camp, that's not a left-wing camp, nor is it a center-left camp in any real sense. Senior members of it are extremely hawkish on the Israeli-Palestinian issue. And the prime minister until about four months ago, Naftali Bennett, was of the hard right, very vociferously anti-two-state solution, continued to be so as prime minister as well. But he broke with the Netanyahu camp and deposed Netanyahu and went with Netanyahu's opponents. So in the short term, it's become... Yes, BB, anti-BB with almost no compromise. 
Underneath it still remains a very strong right-left axis, which has to do with Jewish-Arab relations and with hawkishness and dovishness towards the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So is it fair to say that the, the current camps are the hard right religious camp, the national, the national and the religious camp on the one hand, and the not BB camp on the other, which spans everything from, you know, quite right to Islamist. Yeah, that's right. The, the Netanyahu camp is more coherent than the anti-Netanyahu camp. It is centered around the Likud, which is by far the largest party. That's Netanyahu's party. That used to be a national liberal party as it was defined, and it still has a little bit of remnants of that in the sense that it's not overtly religious, although many religious voters do vote for the Likud. Uh, Netanyahu himself is not a religious man. And it is uh, certainly hawkish, but used to be at least moderately hawkish. Uh, Netanyahu himself was sort of flirting, at least rhetorically, with two-state solution when Obama was president. And, of course, the Likud is also the one that signed the peace treaty with Egypt under Menachem Begin, the, the canonical leader of the Likud. And then around that are two ultra-Orthodox party or Haredi parties, one Ashkenazi, one Sephardic, Shas and United Torah Judaism. And then what's now called religious Zionism, although that's a name that they've appropriated, which I would say is a union between three groups, the very, very, very right wing, the ultra extremely super beyond the pale right wing, and then the purely homophobic party in a three-way union among the three of them, uh, which are, they're now the third largest party in the Knesset. All right. So let's talk a little bit about the other block because the the failure of unity within that block is largely the explanation for yesterday's result. This block includes the traditional center left, including Israel's largest party, a uh, second largest party, uh, uh, Yeshatid. It also includes the traditional left, including uh, the Labour Party, which has is a small fraction of what it used to be. And the Meretz party, which you uh, just talked about, is, is maybe going to scrape by over the threshold or may not. And it includes the Palestinian-Israeli parties, uh, as well as some, some right parties that are anti-Netanyahu. Had Meretz and Labor run together and had the Balad nationalist Palestinian party run with either of the other two uh, or three, depending on how you count Palestinian parties, they easily clear the threshold and we're in a completely different post-election uh, landscape than we are. Why did Meretz and Labor and Balad run separately and help create this situation? Yeah, that's the key question, of course, and we're a bit sort of Monday, Monday morning quarterbacking, I think is the phrase. In the case of Labour and Meretz, these are sister parties. Meretz grew out of Labour a few decades ago. They are very close in many respects, uh, socially and ideologically. Meretz is more to the left of Labour. Labour and its current leader still have aspirations of one day clawing their way back into leadership position and maybe competing for leadership of the country. It seems like a pipe dream. It probably is. Um, but Labour was the founding party of the country. It's the party that David Ben-Gurion founded in different names then. And it's the party of Yitzhak Rabin and many other prime ministers. And so Labour still has those aspirations. Meretz has a, what's now in Israel a taint of being leftist. It calls itself leftist. It's one of the very few parties 
maybe the only party that sort of proudly says says we are leftist, not center. Uh, Labor, despite the name, which could not be more left wing, uh, says we're a center party. Um, and that says something about the state of the left wing in Israel. So a lot of this has to do with ego and with sort of uh, the aspirations of the different components here. Labor argued, and perhaps perhaps they were right, that in some polls they thought that running separately would actually help the bloc in some way. It's a very convoluted math and logic there. By and large, Meretz wanted to join in because of exactly this fear and this constant fear of the voters of Meretz and even of Labor that their party might not pass a threshold. They have always passed it, but it looks like this time they will not and Meretz will be out of the Knesset. And Labor refused. So that's the short of it. It's good old political nonsense is the real reason. Balad and the other parties that are based on the Arab vote in Israel is a different story. These are four parties with very, very different ideological outlooks. They ran together as the joint list, all four of them. Ram, which is the Islamic-based party, the Islamist-based party. Balad, the very nationalist one. Atal, the moderately nationalist one. And then Hadash, which is the um, communist and others sort of base, very secular party. They ran in the distant past, they all ran separately. Then they ran together as the joint list. And then Ram, the Islamist one, split off and, of course, joined the last coalition. The, la- the other three remaining parties were running together. It is Balad that decided at the very, very last minute, just before uh, the list were closing, that they would run separately. They did so partly because they have a very different outlook on participation in the political game. They are opposed to... Israel, as it's currently constituted, they want a different regime. They want um, they don't want a Jewish state. They their ideology is a very clear one of a state for all its citizens. And Hadash and Tal, which of course also would support that, uh, do want to play the game, not to the degree that Ram, the Islamist party, did in the past coalition, but they would like to cooperate, and they have many times cooperated with the center and center left in passing various legislation and various budgets for their community. Um, they, for example, in abstaining, made sure that the last coalition even came into being. The Bennett-Lapid government would not have come into being. Well, it would have come into being without them acting. It did. But they were waiting there in the wings, effectively abstaining to make sure that it passed. Bala doesn't play that game. Bala is not interested in cooperating with anyone. It thinks that the, uh, Zion, the liberal Zionists and the not liberal Zionists, they're all the same ilk. And they are opposed to all of it. And so there's a real ideological difference there. They did not pass, uh, but I think if you ask them, they would not bemoan the situation. Uh, if Bibi and Benfield come into power instead of the center-left, that's okay. It's all the same thing. And maybe this, in the old Leninist uh, kind of way, accentuates the, the, the contradictions in the system and maybe, maybe will bring its downfall. That's their approach. It's very much not the approach of the other members of the joint list. All right. So the result is that you have on the left and Palestinian uh, Arab bloc basically seven and a half seats that have evaporated by virtue of Meretz coming right up to the threshold and not crossing it if that holds and Balad uh, coming almost as close to the threshold and also not crossing it. And the result is, assuming that holds, that Bibi has 65 potential seats uh, on the right nationalist camp uh, from which he will clearly form his government because uh, it seems very unlikely, with the possible exception, I suppose, of 
the Benny Gantz party, it seems very unlikely that anybody in that other camp is going to join him. Is that fair? Are we talking about a a government of the the right, the religious, the hard right, and the very, very, very hard right? Yes. And not only that, we've already heard Benny Gantz not concede because he's not exactly the opponent, but say we are going to go, we respect the the uh, decision of the voter, and we will go to the opposition. Benny Gantz and parts of his party were the, the suspects that maybe they would be cajoled into joining with Netanyahu and replacing Ben Gvir and the, the far, far right. Uh, Benny Gantz has denied that throughout the campaign, and he, he has come out with his partners, uh, come out now after the election saying the same. Never say never in Israeli politics, but since Benny Gantz has already been fooled once by Netanyahu, it's unlikely, at least in the short term, that he would do so. When Natan says Benny Gantz was fooled once, he's referring to an episode two elections ago, three elections ago, I, who knows, um, when Gantz, as a matter of statesmanship, uh, agreed to a kind of national unity government with Netanyahu. He was going to be the uh, the rotation prime minister. And of course, Netanyahu brought the government down uh, and went to elections rather than allow him to rather than honor his deal. Is that a is that the the f- a fair summary? Yes, exactly. And when he did so, his partners, headed by Yair Lapid, broke with him. That's when the old blue and white broke up. Benny Gantz was the leader of a united blue and white front that including included Yair Lapid as number two. Uh, when Benny Gantz decided to go with Netanyahu or was was looking like he, like he would, Yair Lapid broke with him. And Benny Gantz did enter as alternate prime minister. That was a position that was invented for him, in fact. And he thought that he had managed to close all the legal loopholes so that Netanyahu could do nothing but transfer the prime ministership to Benny Gantz. I'll, I'll give an example. Since this is lawfare, I'll let myself dive into this detail. When a prime minister and an alternate prime minister, again, an invention of a year and a half ago, when they swear in now in Israel, they swear in as, I swear in as alternate prime minister and future prime minister, meaning that when the day comes on the calendar, that person becomes prime minister. They don't even have to take an oath of office because they have already done so. He thought that that was ironclad, except they left one loophole, which is that if the budget did not pass, then the Knesset would automatically be dissolved and the sitting prime minister would remain prime minister. Netanyahu had no qualms about not passing a state budget, although he could easily have passed his own state budget. And as prime minister decided, I won't have a budget, therefore I'll dissolve the Knesset. The country can continue with no budget for almost two years. And as long as Benny Gantz does not replace him, uh, then we went to the the last election and that's when Naftali Bennett and Yair Lapid managed to form a coalition. Okay, so you, I, I interrupted you for that clarification. You were about to say something. I vaguely remember, and I think what I was <laughs> saying was that uh, Benny Gantz was fooled once, so it's extremely unlikely. But there's another thing, which is that Netanyahu, in the distant past, has flirted with going to the center. He comes from this from the right wing, and early in his career, in the '90s in particular, he wanted to come from the right, win the primary, be very anti-Oslo there. And then once he was leading the Likud in the general election, he said, I will not annul the Oslo agreements, they're an international agreement, and I will tack to the center. A very American-style triangulation, and he's a very American-style politician. And when he did so, he very much wanted to go to the center, and he did so also later. But Netanyahu learned the lesson, which is that he must never, ever forsake his flank, his right-wing flank. And so he may bring in the center, yes, 
but he would not do so at the expense, especially of such a large group now on the far, far right. So Netanyahu in the future may certainly try to bring in the center and he'll try to fool everyone. That's exactly what he does. And he's a master politician. And I, I say this to his credit as a politician in a sense, but he will do so with a firm base on the right. And there's one more very, very important reason why he will do so. This is not just about who's prime minister. Netanyahu cares about that a lot. He thinks it's it, it, prime minister's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is one uh, one phrase in his mind, but he also needs to get out of his trial. He's on corruption trial. He's charged with three ca- different cases, including bribery and breach of trust, and he needs to get out of that. And to do that, you can't do that with Benny Gantz. You can't do that with Benny Gantz's partners like Idon Sal. You need to do that with hard right. And now when his camp has shed over these five elections, has shed any remnants of what was sort of the liberal part of the Likud, he now can do that. And he has a moment of grace, I hate to use that word, uh, of being able to change the legal system, certainly to change the attorney general, perhaps, if he wants, uh, or over time, or make her life miserable so that she resigns, and maybe also make other legal changes. There are many different legal ways of doing so. I don't pretend to know what exactly he will choose to do, but clearly that's on his mind staying out of prison. It's, he might literally go to prison if he doesn't do so. He has an opportunity to do so. Why would he want a coalition with Gantz? All right. So let's talk about the coalition that he is therefore likely to put together. Uh, the major components of it are, are, of course, his own Likud, which will constitute about half of it. Uh, the religious, the ultra-Orthodox parties, of which uh, there are uh, two, one uh, Ashkenazic and one Sephardic. And then the, I'm not sure exactly what to call them, a coalition of people who really don't like Arabs and people who really don't like gay people. Is that with the sort of dominant factor being on the, uh, on the anti-Arab uh, component? I, I don't guess by the time the election happened, it wasn't a surprise, but the big change in the Knesset is the rise of this radical right uh, group called the Religious Zionist Party and led by uh, uh, Mr. Ben Gvir. Who is he? Who's his partner in this operation? And why are they suddenly winning 15 seats in the Knesset? Yeah, so it's a hard one. So the nominal head of religious Zionism, of this amalgam, is a man by the name of Bezalel Smotrich, who is a very, very right-wing, extremely right-wing. He's not Bengvil quite, but he's extremely right-wing, uh, very anti-Arab and many other things. But also, interestingly, just from a sociological perspective, he's representing something called religious Zionism, which in Israel is a also a social strand, national religious, which early in Zionism was an interesting midway between the ultra-Orthodox who were non-Zionist and in some of them even anti-Zionist. They saw Zionism as a secular movement that was trying to um, nudge the hand of the divine instead of just keeping the Jewish law and therefore making the divine bring uh, the, uh, the salvation. They were trying to bring salvation themselves. So they were very anti-Zionist. That was extremely short and bad way of describing it, um, between them and the secular Zionists. And here was national religious that were sort of in between. Over time, they became associated, after 67, they became more and more associated with a new movement within them that was more nationalist and very hawkish. They were not hawkish early in the state. These days, we see a new third stream, which is known in Hebrew as Chaldali, which is Haredi, ultra-Orthodox, and the Tilumi, national religious, somewhere in between. And Smotich is very much one of those. He is 
very conservative religiously, much more conservative, say, than Naftali Bennett. Naftali Bennett has a small kippah. His wife wears pants. I'm sorry to get graphic, but it's true. She wears pants rather than a dress. Uh, they have a television at home, which would be clearly a national religious thing. Um, they are very religious light in the minds of Haredi people, certainly. Bezalel Smotich in that regard is much closer to the ultra-Orthodox, and he has much more respect for the ultra-Orthodox rabbis. He himself will talk about consulting with rabbis, although he's not subservient to one in the same way that the ultra-Orthodox are. But he, his family, and in many other respects, is much, much more conservative, and that's the vision he has for the state, a far more religiously conservative state. Um, and that is a new strand. It's also a strand that presages a bit of what happened here, which is that Benville, which I'll get to, whom, whom I'll get to in a second, has and, and Smotrich together have managed to draw a lot of voters, young voters in particular, who are sometimes ultra-Orthodox themselves, who would not, would traditionally always be voting, according to the rabbis, for the ultra-Orthodox parties that were sometimes not very Zionist and would, would go with the right or the left or whatever they want, uh, and certainly Shas voters. Here you have them going for this new kind of much more amorphic place between those groups. He was running with Naftali Bennett, under Naftali Bennett for many years, Smotrich. There was no love lost between them. They have very different worldviews and religious issues, but they ran together as the very hard right. What Netanyahu managed to do in the last several rounds, but especially the last one, is to force and cajole a union between Bezalel Smotrich and Itamar Ben-Gvir with his party, uh, Jewish Power, Otsma Yehudit, which is one of the successors to... Meir Kahana's Kach party. Meir Kahana was a rabid racist um, who openly, explicitly called for Israel not to aspire to be a democracy, but rather a Jewish theocracy of sorts that wanted to enact, um, I'm not the first to say this, Nuremberg-style laws prohibiting marriage and even physical intimacy between Jews and non-Jews and a whole long list of absolutely abhorrent racist laws. He was an American Jew who moved to Israel. He was the founder of the JDL and then moved to Israel. And he was elected to the Knesset once. When he spoke, people from most parts of the of the parliament, including the leaders of the Likud, including Tzhak Shamil, the predecessor, immediate predecessor of Benjamin Netanyahu then, refused to listen to him. They would leave the plenary. They would not countenance such a vile abomination of what Israeli democracy might produce. The president at the time, Chaim Herzog, happens to be the father of the current president, refused to accept Kahana in his mansion in the presidential home uh, as is customary after the elections. And here you have the successor to Yitzhak Shamir bringing in Itamar Ben-Gvir and cajoling him and Betsara Smotich to run together so as to make sure that none of the extremist votes that Ben-Gvir was still getting would be lost in his attempt, Netanyahu's attempt, to reach 61. So this is, just to be clear... Netanyahu doing precisely what we just talked about, merits and labor failing to do, and Balad refusing to do, forcing uh, small groups together to make sure that none of them fall below the threshold to keep that denominator uh, of votes as large as possible. One more thing on this. So Benville, you asked who is he? Benville was sort of a small-time provocateur. Um, he's my age, uh, and I, we, I would see him in Jerusalem. I grew up in Jerusalem. You would see him out and about. Uh, I knew who he was. Everyone knew who he was. He was a small-time provocateur. He became famous in the lead-up to the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin because he was televised, uh, young at the time, televised, holding 
the emblem of the prime minister's vehicle, of Rabin's prime min- uh, vehicle, saying to the camera, we got to the vehicle, we'll get to Rabin. And in fact, the assassin of Yitzhak Rabin um, was recorded in, in his testimony before the committee that, that inquired afterwards on the assassination, saying that he wasn't sure he wasn't going to kill Rabin that night when he came, uh, and he heard that this guy, Tamal bin Gvir, wanted to do so. Tamal bin Gvir has been convicted numerous times of inciting violence, inciting racism against Arabs, of many other misdemeanors and crimes. And he was, uh, in fact, unwanted by the military. He was never conscripted into the military because of his background and his criminal record. That was Itamal Bengvil. And so before this kind of orchestration by Netanyahu, he was always on the very, very fringe of things. But since this happened, he's become normalized in Israel, in part by the media that found someone who has a way with the media. He's not charismatic is a wrong word, but there is a certain charisma there. There's certainly a savviness about using the media, a, an eagerness, a, ver- a big, big hunger for attention. And he delivered. He brought them rating. And so he's been in the TV channels, on the, in the studios throughout the last months and weeks and days. And he's been normalized and he became a thing. And it's a thing like you see the far right in many other places that has gotten a wave. And that's what's produced this. So although Smotrich is the head of this list, everyone talks about Benville, not about Smotrich so much. He's the sensation of this election and he's probably going to be a senior minister now. Yeah, so this is actually uh, raises an interesting question, which is how much of this effect, the Ben Gvir effect, is Israel specific? You know, this is a movement with a long history in Israel. It's a movement that has always appealed to a certain subset of very violent people. But there's also, you know, Italy just elected one of them and, you know, the, the Sweden Democrats and we have the Trump movement. How much of this is, you know, the rightward drift of Israeli politics and how much of this is the, you know, the rise of the worst everywhere? I don't have a good answer for that because I think it's an excellent question. I think the real answer is all of the above. It is in part a reflection of the times we're in a breaking down of kind of norms and almost an appeal of this aesthetic of I'm going to break the norms, I'm going to say what everyone thinks but doesn't dare to say, that kind of thing. Which That was Kahana's famous slogan, I say what you think. Exactly. And so there's a part of that that is very much similar to Italy and to many other places, right? I'm going to tap into your deepest fears and I'm going to vocalize them and I'm not afraid to say it. They won't say it, but I'm not afraid to say it. So some of that is universal and is true in many parts of the world, from Spain to the United States to certainly Italy now. But part of that is very specific to Israel also. We're talking here about a specific context and a conflict and someone who has a history. Itamal ben Gvir came to fame. I mentioned him before in the run-up to the Rabin assassination. You know, these are the days of the Oslo process. And they're remembered in the Israeli public as very bloody days of a lot of terrorism. And then the Second Intifada. And so this is the moment, especially 2000, when the Second Intifada starts, this is the moment in which the left wing in Israel is decimated, doctrinally so, where there's a perception among the median Israeli voter that the left wing promised peace and I, the median voter, gave them a chance and they failed miserably. What what did we get? We got the Second Intifada, the war that Arafat waged on Israel. And of course, I'm, I'm vocalizing a theoretical, hypothetical median voter here. And... 
not only that, but this was done by the leaders who brought the Alzo process. And so whether all of them will say this or not, it was Rabin's fault. It was Peres' fault. And who was against it? The far right, the right. So Bibi has, of course, Bibi Netanyahu has, has, of course, benefited greatly from this, this general perception, but also the far right. And one of the slogans that you'll see in many places and also plastered on the walls in many places is Kahana was right, Kahana Tzadak. And Benville vocal benefits certainly from that very much. So there's a mix of all these things. There's a right-wing shift. There's a very strong anti-Arab, anti-kind of even the notion of naive peace that will endanger us. Uh, the criminals of Oslo is a term that you will hear. And here's a guy who will finally say it. Uh, and there's also just the sensation of a new thing. We've had, you know, in other elections in previous years, you remember, Ben, there's been the uh, Pensioners Party was the star of one election. And Yair Lapid's father, Tommy Lapid, the secular party, they were the star of another election. There's always some sensation that people go to. This time, unfortunately, it's the most vile kind. And I'll say just one last thing about this. This is also very different from Italy and other places in other ways. Not to, not to diminish how important it is in Italy or anywhere else. But in Israel, there's an ongoing conflict. Itamal Benville is not just symbolically bad. When we talk about the violence, for example, not last May, but the May before that, that started in the Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood in north central Jerusalem and then spread to Gaza and Israel. Itamal Benville is actively, energetically, personally involved with inciting the flames in Sheikh Jarrah and anywhere else he can find. As a member of Knesset, since he was a member of Knesset recently, he would set up his parliamentary bureau on the street in Sheikh Jarrah, which means that the police cannot stop him. He has immunity as a, a member of parliament. They cannot prevent him from entering there legally because he's a member of parliament doing his duty. The police can't stop him. Can't stop me now. And what he was there to do was to incite violence. And he's been waving his handgun around in recent weeks. This is a man who is very literally playing with fire. A chief of police who's no bleeding hard leftist, to say the least, has accused him of being in charge of a lot of incitement, not to say that all the violence is, of course, Benville, but he's been involved in trying to promote it. And if he now becomes a senior minister and he wants to be minister of internal security, meaning in charge of the police, we're talking about the pyromanic in charge of the fire department. Uh, it's not just symbolically bad. And of course, in Italy, there's many real ramifications too beyond symbolism. But in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, this is extremely combustible and also a very extremely combustible time on the Palestinian side for other reasons. This is truly dangerous. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life, what would you do with it? Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? Would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time. You actually can create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you making that a priority, and that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way 
to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills. It can help you be the best version of yourself. And it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule. All you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash lawfare. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And delete me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web, and in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan 
when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 code lawfare20. All right, so let's talk about what the likely policies and short and medium term ambitions of a hypothetical 65 seat Netanyahu government look like. So first of all, I think it's, it's fair to say Netanyahu's top priority is interfering with or preventing the completion of the criminal case against him. Uh, uh, what are his levers? He gets sworn into government uh, uh, as prime minister with this coalition, uh, what are his levers of power to get the corruption cases, which are ongoing? The, tr- the trials are literally happening now. What are his levers to get them uh, dismissed or, or gotten rid of? Okay, so first my disclaimer for the law for audience, I am not a lawyer nor a law professor, so distinguishing, distinguishing me from Ben Wittes, who was one of those two. He has a lot of levers of power. It's not as easy as it was before he was indicted. Since it's in trial at the moment, of course, the justices, the judges have power over the case. So, for example, if he fires the attorney general, which the government could, he as prime minister cannot, but the government he will chair can, um, and he could also make her life miserable until she resigns, which would be, I think, much easier procedurally. Uh, Firing is not so simple. He could appoint someone who would then sign a plea deal with him. But of course, the court has to accept the plea deal. And so that's not trivial. Now, the plea deal could include even him admitting to offenses uh, so long as it does not include moral turpitude, which would mean that he is banned from uh, politics for seven years. That's the key. And of course, prison time. Those are the two things that he wants to avoid. There are There is one case in uh, his trial, which is bribery, one count of bribery. And the rest are counts of breach of trust, which is a very amorphous and uh, honestly rather problematic count in the criminal books in Israel. And in a vacuum, maybe should have a second look. That is something that people on the far right, Smotrich's party, have been talking about revisiting. Perhaps they would cancel this, this crime. And then that would, in fact, they deny it, but in fact, it would affect Netanyahu's trial himself. He would then not be, you could not then have him on trial over a crime that no longer exists. He would still have the bribery case, but he may hope to get out of the bribery case, which is a harder one to prove, of course. Bribery is very hard to prove. He can, the attorney general can unilaterally or almost unilaterally, I think with some written justification to the court, postpone the trial. So you could put it on hold for a long time, which could help or hurt, and Netanyahu might choose to do that through an attorney general. There are a variety of different ways. They could also decide, for example, that a sitting prime minister, what's known as the French law, because France has something like this about the president, a sitting prime minister could not be indicted, or in Netanyahu's case, I would have to say, could not be on trial while he's prime minister so that he could serve, again, with with a rationale that might might sound reasonable in a vacuum. If it was not retroactive, it might sound reasonable to say, while the chief executive of the country is working, they will not be on trial. All this to say there are a whole lot of different ways and there's also legal um, creativity to be had here. I do not know which way he will might go. And in part, I don't know because I don't know exactly which Netanyahu we're talking about. Netanyahu, even as recently as 2009, 
would not have done a lot of what he's done recently. When he formed a coalition in 2009, he tried to bring in all the respectable voices from the center and even from the left into his inner cabinet, including Ehud Barak, who was leader of labor. He wanted to do that, do that in part as a lesson from his term, his first term in the 1990s, that was very divisive and polarized and uh, tumultuous. Netanyahu has since become much more powerful, indispensable in his own eyes. There is no replacement for Netanyahu in his own eyes. He is much more experienced than anyone else around him, which is true. He is sure he's the smartest person in the room, which if he's right, then of course he's in the wrong room. And he also has lost any inhibitions, as we've seen with Benville. Netanyahu, I, you know, as you may have noticed by now, I guess on minute 40, I'm, I'm not a huge fan, but Netanyahu, of the old would not have flirted with Benfield. This is not exactly where Netanyahu is coming from by any means. He saw himself as a successor to Begin and Shamir and the tradition of liberal nationalism. And he is flirting with Benfield because there's no holds barred now for him. He is trying to get out of prison. And so I don't know what he will do. Okay. So the second category of matters uh, relates to the arsonists in charge of the fire department issue. Netanyahu is uh, extremely cynical, and uh, uh, but he is not crazy. At least he's historically not crazy. What do you do with Ben Gvir now having flirted with him, having brought him in, having no coalition plausible that doesn't include him? The United States is putting out noises that, you know, our people won't engage with him. How do you uh, run a government with, you know, a true out-and-out fascist in it? Well, what you try to do is to compartmentalize all these different issues. You try to keep Benville not happy, but as happy as necessary so he doesn't cause too much trouble. Um, you try to tell yourself a story that many people have said about many extremists in many places that, you know, if I bring him in, he'll be become more responsible. And of course, in some cases, that's true. I do not think that's the case with Benfield. He'll be more responsible because he'll have to he'll want to prove himself so that it becomes more mainstream, etc., etc., etc. So you can tell yourself stories like that. You will try to give him a portfolio. I hope, I suspect, Netanyahu will try to avoid giving him uh, internal security, but you never know. It's a big party now on the far right, so you never know what they will get. And it's not just Ben Gvil. The question is, what does Smotrich get? Smotrich would like defense. He would like treasury. He would like uh, justice. And he will be the number one on the second largest party in the coalition. And so he can expect one of those. That would be extremely dangerous and extremely volatile as well in other respects. Smotrich is a very smart man, very able, and very extreme. And he will not have the same uh, international pressure about Smotrich that he will get about Ben Gvil, whether for good or bad reason, whatever. Ben Gvil will certainly be a lightning rod. I do think the United States, you know, we've heard even Bob Menendez, who's probably the most hawkish Democrat in the Senate, uh, speak uh, in Israel about the danger of having Ben Gvir in the coalition. And we've heard, we've seen others, even APAC had a statement a couple of years ago about, about Ben Gvir. This would be a lightning rod to the United States. And I do very much hope that America makes clear, as it has with other allies in the past, that while it, of course, will engage and work with the Israeli government, um, that Benville and his party members are, are beyond the pale, are, are contrary to American values, and that America will not engage with them. I very much hope they stick to that. And I hope that the American civil society in general, Jewish and otherwise, will, will also stick to this. You cannot, we cannot normalize a person like this and a, and a worldview like this. So what will Netanyahu do? He will try to keep them as happy as possible without interfering too much with real policy. He has long held the view, which is 
perhaps with some truth to it, that in many respects he is prime minister because he's so clearly more experienced than anyone else in his cabinet, will be the one running the show. He'll be the de facto defense minister. He'll be the de facto foreign minister. Whether he has a foreign minister or not, you know, that could change over time. Uh, so he hopes that he will be running the show in kind of a White House style process, although it's not at all a presidential system in theory, and that they will be marginalized. I'll just say that even if he is successful in doing so, ministers in Israel have statutory responsibility for many different things. They are, in theory and sometimes in legal practice, equals to the prime minister. The prime minister is first among equals and only that. And that means that on a variety of different issues, it is the minister of justice who will sign something, not the prime minister. It will be the minister of education who decides things. It will be certainly the minister of defense, who is in fact the sovereign in the West Bank, for example, in many respects. That means that who these senior ministers are is extremely important. Whether or not speaking in the UN and speaking in Washington involves them, they will have enormous impact on the lives of not only Israelis, but Palestinians as well. Yeah. So finally, let's, uh, I want to talk a little bit about, uh, some of the people who lost this election. But before we do, uh, you know, notwithstanding the contentment of Balad, as you described at, uh, the, insignificance of the difference between this outcome and a center-left government or a government of all the anti-Netanyahu forces. Uh, it's a big difference if you're Palestinian, uh, whether as a citizen of Israel or, or in the West Bank, other than the certainty that there will be no forward movement in anything one could call a peace process, uh, which was pretty certain anyway. What does this mean realistically for Palestinians in who live in one way or another under Israeli rule? So it's hard to say in the sense of they could go in many different ways because we were not expecting any major peace process anyway, to, to say the least. In one respect, Netanyahu is very interested in quiet and calm. He, despite all his very hawkish rhetoric, he has a very long history, the longest history as prime minister of Israel. And in Israeli terms, at least, it's these are relatively pacified years. These are not warlike years. He's had one major conflict uh, with Hamas, but he has not gone on military adventures where other prime ministers with very short terms have had major uh, military adventures. And so Netanyahu is eager for quiet. And in that regard, he may, for example, try to keep some of the, what I would think was advancements in Israeli relations with the Gaza Strip, a lot of opening up, still well, well short of what I think should be, but a lot of opening up in terms of the Gaza Strip. Uh, he may try to keep some of that so long as it promotes quiet. And he may also try to may do some moves that might help daily lives in the West Bank. But, and it's a huge, huge but. First, the members of his coalition uh, are not only against big peace movements. They are against these kinds of things. They would, some of them, as I mentioned, Bengvir are actively trying to promote some of the violence and Smotrich and others are not the types who will say, well, we will want to keep the quiet. Secondly, the West Bank is not some situation that is, you know, stable and therefore we can on the edges tinker with things. The West Bank is already beginning to burn. We've seen over 100 killed in the West Bank in the past year, and we've seen a lot of terror attacks against Israelis recently as well. We've seen a erosion in the authority of the security forces, the Palestinian Authority, and deep illegitimacy among Palestinians towards the Palestinian Authority itself with an aging leader 
and no clear mechanism for a future of Palestinian politics. This is a recipe for major unrest and the potential also for a third intifada. Now, that could happen under anyone's watch, and we none of us can predict it. I certainly cannot. But I do know that if you have senior ministers who are not actively trying to be restrained and to manage it in a way that would minimize the damage, but rather in some cases eager to see the Palestinian Authority uh, collapse, for example, which is not the case for Netanyahu, but is the case for some of his new right-wing partners, um, you could see a very different reality. So in short, I, you know, my cynics would say, you know, it's all the same anyway, all, they're all apartheidists or whatever. Uh, I think there's a huge difference. I think it's a huge difference for Palestinians on the ground, those on the ground who matter, not on Twitter. Uh, those in the Gaza Strip who under a different government uh, would still be in a very bad situation, but might see a better situation. We've already seen major advancements in water, in electricity, in things that happen to matter a lot for people and people's lives. And in the West Bank, in terms of live, lo- lives lost. I'm not here to say that had another government happened, there wouldn't be major violence in the West Bank. We already saw the beginning of it, and it could happen anyway. But this is all all the worse for these kind of partners. Not necessarily for Netanyahu himself. Netanyahu is cautious and he's experienced and he will not want a third intifada on his hands. But he's, again, not going to be alone. There will be other ministers with real power. All right, let's talk about some of the losers. Um, We have gone this far without having any serious conversation about Yair Lapid. Uh, Lapid, the outgoing prime minister, is the architect of the anti-Netanyahu coalition. Uh, He's had really an incredible run of political accomplishments over the last two or three years. And it all comes crashing down yesterday. Uh, So my question is, first of all, how much of this is Yair Lapid's fault and failure? And secondly, uh, what happens to him now? Does he become an opposition leader and continue this this campaign of organization and agitation, or does has this election finished him off? It certainly has not finished him off. Yair Lapid has managed in recent years to grow from a mid-sized one of the opposition leaders to the clear leader of the anti-Netanyahu camp. He's shown political ability, remarkable political ability, especially in putting together the Bennett-Lapid government and becoming prime minister. Listen, Truth be told, saying the phrase Prime Minister Yair Lapid is still remarkable for many Israelis. And that's because he was thought of as kind of a callow youth television personality son of his father, or is it more to it than that? Yeah, it's partly that. You know, he he was a Tel Aviv playboy, a good-looking star of romantic, you know, the heartthrob in romantic uh, movies, literally. He wrote some pop songs. He was very accomplished, but it's very accomplished in that kind of realm. And a son of his father, kind of silver spoon. So there was always that kind of feeling. And he give, he has an air, or certainly had an air of arrogance, of someone who sort of thinks of himself more than he is. He never finished university, not that matters, but he never finished university. And Netanyahu will always compare, here's someone who didn't have a meaningful military uh, experience and has no formal education. Here's Netanyahu with with very much both. Yair Lapid grew out of that to be a very responsible and also 
a very responsible politician, but also one who was able to put his own ego aside in letting Benny Gantz take the lead and then letting Naftali Bennett become prime minister first time. These are remarkable things for someone who was always accused of being arrogant and ego more than anything else. And so in that sense, Yair Lapid is still very much the winner of the pa- on the opposition of the past three, few years. Um, and he also managed to build now the second largest party, uh, the largest vote count that his party ever got. He's the clearly the leader of his own party. There's no opposition within it whatsoever. In fact, it's quite a dictatorial party. But it, he was also, I can tell you, he's also actually quite beloved by the people around him. Um, here's a secret I have. I look at politicians. One thing I care about is, is their staff around them? How long has the staff been around them? Has their senior aide been with them for 30 years or is it someone who changes every six months? Yair Lapid is someone who's had close and good staff around him for a very long time. That says something about his leadership style, his ability to choose good people, but also his ability to to get loyalty from them through through some kind of leadership. So he has grown a lot in that regard. Is this his failure? In part, yes. Look, I described what Netanyahu was doing before shamelessly with you know bringing these people and also another homophobic party that we didn't talk about into the fold there. Lapid failed to do so. He failed to do so, especially with la- labor and merits. He did try, and I should give him credit. It was not really up to him. Labor absolutely refused to go along. He did not have any sway over Balad. He never did. Balad would, would not meet him or not take him seriously anyway, so that's not his fault. But he certainly did fail to bring together his coalition. There are those on the left who accuse him of trying to become the biggest party, knowing that some of these votes would come from Meretz, for example, and maybe therefore Meretz fell beneath the threshold. I have to say it's a lot to ask of a politician not to try to become the biggest party you can. So I think this this is a bit overblown. You're going to see more score settling with the leaders of Labour and Meretz than you are with with the ALP themselves. However, Yair Lapid now gave a good fight, and nonetheless, there is a structural advantage here to the right. They came back, you know, the votes are equal, so I should should go back to that, right? If, if everything was united, it would have been a draw again. But that was kind of the best he was hoping for, a draw to stay as caretaker prime minister. The chance of him really putting together a coalition, would have been, it would have been very hard. He would have had to bring in the joint list. Maybe he could do so. But at best, we would be talking about 60 seats. That's not a coalition. 61 is a coalition. And so there is really this upper limit that maybe he has hit. Uh, Of course, on his resume, it will say 14th prime minister of the state of Israel. That's no small accomplishment for someone who joined politics only a decade ago. But nonetheless, there is a real limit here, and he's facing a real power with Netanyahu. Finally, I would be remiss if I did not ask you about Avigdor Lieberman, uh, my absolute favorite Israeli politician, a man with no principles whatsoever, and yet who is the only person other than Yair Lapid, if there's one other person who played uh, almost as big a role or maybe as big a role as in creating this year-long break from the Netanyahu prime ministership. Uh, it would have to be uh, uh, Lieberman. Uh, his vote count was – so he leads a party of Rus- mostly Russian immigrants. Uh, it's traditionally part of the right, but he has a hatred of Netanyahu that burns as hot as a thousand uh, suns. I'm curious. His vote seems to have declined substantially. Uh, is he – uh, finally, a force in eclipse at this point. So, an anecdote on this: you know, this, this whole long political saga of five election cycles started in 2019, 
And we're here in the Lawfare offices and studio just outside this door around then. I ran into Ben Wittes. And Ben said to me, you know, Lieberman's now holding out on, on joining with the Neal Coalition. Is this serious? And me and my infinite errors uh, said, no, come on. He's, his excuse is that he doesn't want to go with the ultra-Orthodox. He's been with them a million times. He's personally friends with some of them. Uh, this is just grandstanding. He'll get what he wants and he'll move on. And I was dead wrong, not for the first or last time. And Netanyahu, without Lieberman, had 60, that exactly 60 back then in 2019. And that is why uh, he did not form a government. I'll say one more thing. Back then in 2019, there was a party that almost crossed the threshold and would have given Netanyahu a coalition without Lieberman, in which case, of course, Lieberman would have joined, but no problem. And that was Naftali Bennett's party. Bennett was out of the Knesset then. Bennett and Ayala Chaked were out of the Knesset. They were missing, I think, 1,300 votes or something to get into the Knesset. Had 1,300 votes gone to Naftali Bennett in 2019, Benjamin Netanyahu would still be prime minister with no election since then, and Bennett would never have been prime minister. Lieberman, to a degree, so what Lieberman did is very interesting. He broke with Netanyahu. He was an aide, a personal aide to Netanyahu in the 1990s. Uh, he himself grew up in the very far right wing where, after he came to Israel from Moldova. He has now tacked, not to the left, and certainly, but, but sort of to the center right, but the secular center right. So what he's running on now is, is secularism. And he's the minister of finance. And he has done a lot, actually, as minister of finance in his sort of bulldozer style. Uh, including cutting a lot of the funding to ultra-Orthodox establishments, including to schools that will not teach core education, English, math, not unlike what we saw recently in New York Times investigations into schools in, in New York. In the Israeli case, it's out in the open. And he was insisting that if you do not teach English and math and other subjects, then you will get less funding. That is something that is about to change dramatically with the new coalition. Funding will be untethered to teaching kids how to support themselves uh, later in life. So that's where, where Lieberman has gone. But Lieberman isn't a demographic problem. He represents less and less right-wing Hebrew-speaking Sabras who were born in Israel, and more is left with his core base, which is mostly aging, and in fact, very much aging, Russian-speaking uh, Jews who had come from the former Soviet Union. They exist. They're a big community. Most of them do not vote for Lieberman, just to be clear. They vote for every which party in Israel. They're a very big community. Likud is the biggest party, of course. It is the biggest party in the general population. Uh, but some of them still do vote Lieberman, but they are aging uh, and they're dwindling. The younger generation is no longer Russian in any respect. It's simply Israeli. And in that regard, he has a bit of a losing ticket. You know, never say never. He's in the game. There'll be many opportunities. He could unite with others. He still brings... Uh, a very loyal base of voters that stuck with him, even though he switched from Netanyahu to Anton Netanyahu. So he clearly still has a base with which to work with, and I would definitely not count him out. But he's not the magic maker that he used to be, and in part because he's lost his um, veto power. Because he's so clearly Anton Netanyahu, he can't play both sides of the game. He's now clearly on one side. We are going to leave it there. Natan Sachs, thank you so much for joining us today. Ben, thank you so much, and thank you, everyone, for joining on Twitter Space. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution, and it's episodes like this where, you know, you just call over to the other side of the Brookings Institution and say, hey, Natan, come on over and let's record a podcast about the Israeli elections that really shows you what that phrase means, you know, produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. 
Look, folks, you need to do your part to promote the Lawfare podcast. So tweet about, you should tag Natan Sachs when you do it. Tweet about what an awesome conversation this was, how you learned more about the Israeli elections from the at Lawfare podcast than you ever could have imagined. That's what you're going to tweet tomorrow. And if Elon Musk doesn't like it, then don't give him those $8 for your verification blue uh, verification mark. Our audio engineer this episode is me. I did it myself. Uh, I ran the Twitter space and I, you know, pressed record on the device. But we are edited by the great Jen Patya Howell. And of course, our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening.